You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome everybody to Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr with uh, my co-host here, Jack Bevere. We've got Fred Lewis in the studio with us and uh, coming from remote, we're back with Ron Phillips. Ron, thanks again for sticking around with us for this second episode. Appreciate you. I know you. Uh, we're going to get you out of here, I promise, in a half hour. So we got a, we got a, lot, of, got a lot of ground to cover here. So Jack, um, we finished up the last episode. Why don't you bring us back up to speed sort of... Um, with you know what what we're going to cover here? Yeah, we were talking about uh, we were talking about the the equity getting involved in multifamily syndications over the past you know five ten years and how kind of like easy it became you know even at the, the mastermind uh, at Real Investor Roundtable we were talking about how you know I would say five six years ago it was ah you know how are we going to raise this money and then two years ago the commentary was well the equity will be easy just put a deck out and you'll be able to raise the equity and and so like the the diligence, you know, last episode, we covered a lot of stuff around the lack of diligence that we've seen in multifamily syndications over the past five years. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to shift gears here and talk about the other part of the capital stack that allowed those deals to happen, which is the, the fundraising on the debt side. Right. Uh, so something that we've seen a lot, and when we were reviewing all those syndications that we took a look at in, in late 2021, were how many of those deals, it was remarkable. How many of those deals had a uh, a quote from Arbor that was a very active, still is very active um, bridge lender on multifamily, kind of like you know two to thirty forty million uh, loan size is kind of their fastball, and they had a, the classic product was a three year fixed rate interest only period with a one year extension. And a bullet after that, so the loan you know matures at the end of that uh, three years or the or the end of the extension, uh, the one year extension if you if you do that, and then you have to refinance them out, and a t- just a tremendous amount of multifamily syndications were financed with that Arbor or or a very similar product from another uh, from another originator. And, you know, the vintage of those, you know, 2020, 2021, when, you know, I think we saw, we would all agree is kind of, we saw like the most dangerous activity, like the, the, the least diligence was in that two year period. It felt like the wild west for sure. Yeah. And that, that, so, you know, do the math there plus three years, plus a one year extension, like the end of this year and next year is when we're going to be, when those loans are going to be reevaluated, you know, right now, maybe they're still getting payments, but when it comes to that extension period, that's when there is a decision to make on the lender's side. And at the end of that one, well, the you know, loan product is just you know definitely in special servicing at that point because it's past its you know legal maturity, and we haven't seen that really kind of come to roost yet. So we you know we're, we're doing a lot of talking here about how we think that there's a bunch of dead men walking. Ron, you talked about some situations that you have you know particular personal knowledge of what's happening, but you know in the overall market though, we're not seeing a ton of like distressed multifamily on CoStar or, you know, I'm not getting a lot of emails about that kind of thing. So like the, the other shoe, shoe hasn't dropped yet, but the, um, so I guess, you know, from, from, let's talk about from the debt point of view, uh, what was it, what was it about, uh, Fred, I, I know you got some, some thoughts on this about the structure of those loans, particularly, and now that we've seen a, such a high, an increasing interest rate environment. And how is that increasing interest rate environment going to affect those loans given that prevalent structure? 
Well, to some degree, those loans had loan origination fees, and they had some they had some juice on the front end for those lenders that that gave them a little bit of head start. And then they had interest rate caps on the three year uh, term. Which an interest rate cap is that the the interest rate may be floating, but it's not going to exceed a certain level. Sure. Right? So it required the borrower to buy and pay for that cap, mm-hmm. and so it's essentially an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. And so the the in the immediate increase in interest rates in early 2022, uh, those caps got blown out. And uh, if not for those insurance products, a lot of these, a lot of the arbors of the world would have been uh, really in distress with these loans. Mm-hmm. They'd be, they actually would be carrying these loans underwater. Mm-hmm. But the insurance policies actually kept them above water just to now, and that's where we are. And right. and it's. You know, we often think that if it hasn't happened, it won't happen. It hasn't happened because things take time for them to flow through a system and for capital to, to for people to bleed out. And it's those, those caps are basically expiring as we, as we see them right now. Those lenders are, are at the end of their two or three year periods. And the cost of the capital for those lenders, Arbor cannot raise capital. Yes. The, the cost of their capital exceeds what they lent the money at. Mm-hmm. Yes, because you know we're talking about guys who are who are not local and regional banks. But let's throw local and regional banks into the mix because we just had massive upheaval in the local regional bank world from you know what everybody heard of with what SBD or, or whatever the bank's names were. Yeah, well, I believe that the same thing is going to happen with commercial paper. Is we're talking about multifamily, but the office space has already started to to happen, and multi multifamily is going to add to this. And many of the loans were given by local and regional banks. So I I didn't get my loans from Arbor. I got them from local and regional banks. Local and regional banks are going to aren't going to give you know on a let's add into the equation all of the bridge debt that has been taken out for the people who are going to do the twelve month flips right that that turned into two and three-year renovation projects. All of that is also, that's due already, okay? And those guys are now trying to refinance into debt they can't afford with cap rates that have expanded. And, you know, on a $10 million deal, the difference between a 4% and a 7% interest rate is, what, probably a quarter of a million dollars a year in cash flow, maybe more. It's a lot, okay? In addition to that, if your cap rate on a property that's you know supposed to be worth ten million dollars goes from what you thought at four and a half percent to even five and a half percent, you're underwater with without the change in the interest rate because all of the money that you planned on for your for for the upside is getting eaten alive by an expansion in cap rates, which is currently happening. It's just not happening as fast. But you throw in the mix. Uh, uh, an upheaval in commercial paper on the lending side where regulators are involved, you know, all of a sudden it changes the game pretty quickly because when the regulators come in and the regulators say, hey, you guys, this, this local bank or this regional bank, you guys are upside down because you made a loan at 75% of value and 75% of value now is calculated as 6.5% cap rate instead of a 4.5% cap rate, the bank comes calling for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, depending on the size of the loan. And oh, by the way, you have to, you have this, there, here's a capital call for you. And 
after you get done with the capital call, your interest rate's going to go up three or four points in addition. That deal's done. You can't save that deal. Yeah, let's talk about the game theory of that situation, right? So like we have a, you know, you, you, a syndicator buys a deal. I'm just going to make up numbers with a $700,000 NOI. And their business plan says that they're going to get that NOI up to a million dollars over the course of you know, the first 18 months within that bridge period. Now, they bought that deal in 2021. So the rent increases that happened in 2020 and 2021 haven't kept up since then, right? Because we've had rising interest rates bringing, uh, you know, r- rising interest rates, and, and that's really kind of put the, the lid on the, the real estate market. So you've had slowing increases. Yeah, of slowing rent, increases. Yeah, yeah. Some more modest increases. So instead of that million dollars of NOI, you only got to, say you only got to 850. You know, like you're not a terrible operator. You, you made it part of the way there, but the market didn't help you out. And so then you go, you hit the end of your, your uh, bridge period and you've got $850,000 of NOI. And the, uh, the bank does an appraisal because you're saying, hey, like I'm trying to refinance right now. You go to, you go to request a refinance. There's only $850,000 of NOI. But today, instead of, uh, instead of that debt service coverage ratio underwriting being calculated on a 4% interest rate, it's being calculated on a, a what is it, seven right seven, now? Seven and a half. And so when you calculate the debt service coverage, they say, hey, you know, f- like frankly, there's just not enough NOI to service this debt and, re- and, and send any money. Nor would there be if you got it to a million. Yeah, right, right exactly, yeah. So like there's, there's certainly no cash out. And frankly, you know, the, the 10 million, I'm making up numbers here, the $10 million loan that you have, actually it needs to be 9 million. You know, the new interest rate is 7% and actually we need to refinance this $10 million loan and we need to dial it back a million dollars and it needs to be 9 million. So you need to go call your LPs who haven't seen the distribution, right? Because everything's been going to, to just debt service and facing this like in this higher interest rate environment that we are now sitting in today. And with still the possibility of a recession coming, and you need to go do a capital call for them and say, hey, I need you to pony back up. I need another mill into this deal. So everyone, you know, pro rata, you know, if you, if you put in 500 grand before, I need another sure. 300 from you now, for example, on a deal that isn't performing very well. And once you put that million bucks in, also, they're, they're not going to see distributions, right? This is just to keep the bank from shooting you in the head because they've got the option to do so. That those conversations, I'm I know that those conversations are have started to happen are and are just going to be happening more and more and more. Let's talk about the game theory of that situation, right? Like let's say that's where the syndicator puts himself into. If you're if you're the syndicator, what are your options? If you're the LP, what are your options? And by the way, if you're the lender, what are their options? Right. Because I think that it some people say, like, well, then, then the bank's gonna shoot you in the head. Which one do you want to start with? So um, let's talk about it from the bank's perspective. Like the decision making that the bank has. To you know, confronted with that situation, they've got a, a willing operator who just didn't execute what he th- thought they were going to do, and you've got a deal that's a little, a little overlevered in a very real scenario. Correct. Yeah, Ron, I think that's very generous um, because you, you really didn't even, <laughs> you didn't even really expand the cap rate, right? So that's just a, that's just a, oops, we didn't, we didn't hit the rents. Yeah, yeah, you're but right. We had a, oops, we didn't hit the rents, and oh by the way, cap rates have expanded. I mean, on a, on a, on a deal you, like you were just talking on a million dollars at a four and a half percent cap rate versus a six and a half percent cap rate, that's $7 million in value. That is not chump change on that freaking deal. That is 
every ounce of the money that you thought you were going to make on it and then some, and it's called no cash flow. So no, you're right. I think it depends on the bank. I'm, I'm not a banker, so I, I don't understand exactly how the regulatory system works. There's a few things that I think that people need to be aware of because I've been through this once where a bank capital called me. That's how I learned the lesson is that I got capital called on a property. <laughs> Thank God. I just, I had enough equity. I could just sell it. So we sold it. But I got capital called on a property that I wasn't expecting. And we had so much equity in the deal. I couldn't believe they were capital calling us, but they did anyway. And the reason they capital called us is because the regulators told them to. This is what I learned. They capital call the people who have money. So there's, there's a lot of loans out there that are called demand loans. Mm. And for whatever reason, at any point, if the regulators say, you need to call these guys and get money, they call those guys and get money. And they make up some freaking reason and they go get money from the people who have money in the accounts. And that's how they, that's how they fix some of the other BS stuff that they've got on their books. Because that's what they did to me. And, and there wasn't really anything I could do about it. It's not like I could go back and say, well, you guys are wrong about all of your assumptions. The bank sets the rules. It doesn't make any difference. So right. re read your loan documents because it's pretty important. I think it depends on what the regulators say when they go in. And I think that depends on how many loans that these guys have made, what percentage of their, of their book of business is actually commercial paper, and how is their commercial paper performing. I, that's the, Fred, you can probably um, weigh in a little heavier on this. but. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for good or bad, I consider myself a banker. So nowadays, but I would say that uh, the the first thing is that banks review the files and they look at those covenants typically annually, so they know that the loans that that, don't, that are not covering right now, but they don't really want to deal with them. They want to deal with the people that aren't paying. They want to deal with the actual issues and defaults. These, so banks have special asset committees that actually review this stuff and they're punting right now on what they know is going to be some real pain later, but they rather kind of sequence that pain starting with the, the guys who just default right away or can't pay or have some, some other issues. And they're extending loans 90 days, 120 days as we speak, where they're looking at those covenants and they're having conversations about why they don't cover and they're trying not to default those loans. The issues with the, uh, the regulators is simply that the regulators, and this is really an interesting phenomenon over the last 30 days, the regulators are looking at community banks all across the country mm. and saying, hey, your CRE loans, which is your, your commercial real estate loans, you have too many of them. They represent too much of the book. Uh, the concentration is too, you know, too much, and we're concerned that we're going to see credit loss. Now, up until up until now, we could talk about a lot of things, but we haven't seen borrowers default in any kind of size, which is what they view as credit loss. But now they're starting to see credit loss actually increase. If you look at bank call reports across the country, uh, credit loss and uh, and lates and and assets that are going to special assets have have almost doubled just in the last 90 days. Did we learn nothing in the run-up to 2008 where we had all of these small community banks and even some regional banks that were just betting the farm on local real estate, especially in, in our case, it yeah. was residential. In this case, it's multifamily. Um, did we learn anything from that, from all those banks that got shut down and sort of bought and swallowed? And so- Well, 
Yeah, and then we shoved we shoved so much PPP money into the deposit system. The banks like we were just just sitting on just a you know gobs of free money, mm-hmm. and frankly, just the greed factor of you know we can just leave this in our savings account, you know, in the in, in our escrow accounts at zero percent, or we can lend it out on these multifamily deals and compete with compete with that market. And you know, the temptation to do that residential real estate it had been up for the past ten years. At that time, it felt safely. I mean, I'm at seventy seventy five percent. What could happen? Like, what is the what is the the Fed going to increase interest rates by five percent? And holy and holy fuck, that's exactly what happened over the course of the next twelve over a twelve month period. The Fed said, "Hold my beer," <laughs> and and then, and then the market said, "Hey, Fed, hold my beer." And then everybody, yeah. So yeah, yeah. in the in the ten minutes that we have, uh, Ron left, I'd love to go sort of uh, you know can continue to game this out from now. The well, I, I want to ask I want to ask Ron a question: How he'd react to this? Because this is what I think is actually going to happen. I think that. Uh, as banks, to your community bank you know, point, banks are losing deposits, not all of them, but a lot of them at, at alarming rates. Money's moving into treasuries, money's moving out of banks. And as a result of that, and as the cost of funds that bankers, banks are now experiencing, you cannot, you cannot turn your computer off without seeing a promotion for a 5% money market rate. Banks cannot make money, borrowing money at 5% and charging 7 or even 8%. They just... That cannot be their cost of capital long term. So what's happening is banks' margins are thinning, their deposits are outflowing, their their concentration of real estate loans are are heavy, and so what the regulators are already saying is the headwinds here are are pretty kind of tough. And if you're not making money, you can't earn out of it. You got to get rid of some of your 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 real estate paper. And so what's going to happen is they're going to call now. Is it the regulator saying you got to get rid of Ron's loan? Not, not really. But the regulator is saying to the bank, not, "I'm going to not specifically, not specifically, but I'm going to squeeze you, bankers." And so you need to look at your book and you need to reduce it or raise equity. And that's actually a very unique. It's been a long time since the banking industry was forced onto the edge of the cliff to say, "Holy crap, we're not making the money we were two, three, four, five years ago, and we're going to raise capital." Hell no! I'm just going to go jettison Ron's loan. Yeah, where are they going to raise capital? I, I I literally don't. Yeah, I I literally don't know. I, I know that they're, I'm, I'm my my little bank. Um, you know they're they're trying hard um, to compete with the money markets um, and on deposits, but they're only doing it for you know assets north of a million dollars, right? So if you've got million dollar deposits in the bank, then you can then you can get. Because they need larger deposits, they don't need they don't need checking account from grandma that doesn't have any money in it. <laughs> right. They need big amounts of money put you know deposited in the bank. But I, I think this is actually really dangerous because I think you're right. I think they're going to start selling off loans at a discount, or they're going to be forced to mark to market those loans at a loss, which is 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 exactly this, this is almost identical to what just happened, where we had banks who were forced to mark to market their treasuries, right, that they had screwed up mm-hmm. and bought way too long. Well, I think that's what's going to happen because, I don't know, call me crazy, but I think there's a lot of pressure on these local banks because the big banks want to roll up and gobble all these banks. They've been doing it for as long as the, as the money has been flowing. They've been gobbling up little banks. And all of this- At a record pace since 2000. Yeah, they're, 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 they're focusing- they're just swallowing all of this local um, where you can actually bank and have a relationship. 
I've been at Chase forever. Those guys don't give a rip. They don't care about anybody. And, and I finally moved to a local bank and they'll actually work with me and they'll listen to me and I can get loans there that Chase would never give me. And I think if we, I think if what, hap, if what I think is going to happen here happens, it's going to be really bad for commercial lending because the commercial loans are all going to be concentrated in a, what, the top five banks, which are going to gobble up all of the little yep. banks. And all of that local, let's, let's play locally in the same sandbox is going to go away. Um, and I've gotten a lot of loans from those banks, man. They've been very aggressive. If I'm one of the larger banks and I'm sitting on you know, a massive amount of capital, I think, uh, well, if you just take a look at the amount of capital that, that uh, JP Morgan has, uh, cash is sitting around in the edges right now, and, and the larger of the you know, top 10, let's say. Why wouldn't I be looking, you know, if, if the treasury can backstop all of those losses from Silicon Bank, which they did, why wouldn't I, because they, because they mark to market those treasuries. Now, wait one second. Why wouldn't I be a large institutional bank and say, oh yeah, if, that, if, if the regulators are going to come in and, and mark down this real estate, yeah, well, sure, we'll come in and buy that bank. And so I, in terms of commercial lending, that's the fear that I have, that it gets further and further away from the community. Now it's further away from regional. And now it's all concentrated in the hands of very large banks who could care less about Ron Phillips or even Fred Lewis, right? Well, I think, I think what investors need to fear is not Chase coming in necessarily and buying your bank. I think they need to fear that the bank you're with, whether, whether you're with a good bank or not, you need to start there. Whether you think that bank is strong or not, it actually matters who you bank with. Mm -hmm. But the fear is that a regional comes in, comes into that market, buys your bank. They don't give a shit about your loan. They really don't. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to look at the entire loan book. They're going to look at the real estate loans and they're going to shrink it. That's just what's going to happen. That's not a, I think that's going to happen. That's what will happen. Mm -hmm. Because that's what is what happens in times like today. And that's what the regulators are actually telling the banks to go do anyway. Yeah. Go shrink those books. Anyone who's acquiring another bank is going to mark down part of that book, jettison what they can and shrink the book. Yep. And that's what you're exposed to. It's easier than getting deposits. It's easier yeah, than raising absolutely. money. Yeah, shrink, shrink the yeah, shrink the loan base that helps that deposit to loan to loan to deposit ratio. It's the other way to affect that. That that's what I think is so interesting about this game theory, right? Like we've you know, if if we agree, and I think we all do, that there are some um some walking den dead syndicators right now. Lots of headwinds. The game theory around how that's going to play out though, it's not just that they're all going to be lined up and shot, right? And we're going to have a bunch of multifamily that hits that hits co-star. That's that's not what's going to happen. No, no, I don't think so. The the CLO special servicer has different motivations than the particular bank that you might be working with. If you're at a bank with a very strong balance sheet that's not worried about taking write downs, their behavior could be very different than another bank that's that bought too much mortgage-backed securities while they were doing your multifamily loan. And they're actually, you know, they're they're concerned about raising equity. Maybe the tail's wagging the dog a little bit more there. Like they've got a gun to your head, but the regulators have a gun to their head. And so it's not necessarily going to be the first order of magnitude game theory. It's you, you, you actually have to dig deeper to figure out how this is going to how this is going to play out. So I don't think the play if you're if you're hey, if you're listening to this and you're one of those syndicators who's a, who's a little who's 
who knows that they're in a little bit of trouble and you're trying to figure out how to how to navigate the situation. The game theory is not so simple here. Like I, I think that digging deep into figuring out the motivations of your counterparties is going to be a lot more informative as to how this plays out. It's not going to be a one size fits all. Just like hey, for like in 2008, just foreclose on everything listed with a on, with an REO agent. I, that don't I don't see that happening here. I could see a lot of blend and extends. I could see a lot of like recast with you know bringing in new sponsorship where mm -hmm. the existing equity gets diluted or wiped out it could go a lot of different ways here and not just about not just because of the quality of the deal but because of the nature of the counterparties um and i and th that's that's different this time than it was last time we saw a big round of distress and i think that that's going to benefit the operators who are honest with themselves mm -hmm. and honest with their people and start actually talking to their banks now instead of a year from now because things aren't going to get better a year from now they're probably going to get worse and um you know if i were if i were gaming this out on a property of mine and i didn't have locked in loans i would be calling my institutions now and i would be trying to figure out what part of the game i'm playing with each one of the properties that i have and i would be very upfront i think the most important thing listen to anything else on on this show most important thing is that you need to start being honest, completely honest with yourself, number one, with your, your LPs, number two, and then with your banking partners, number three. Everybody needs to know where you're at. And if you're not, dude, you're, you're, you're going to get smoked and you're not only are you going to lose everything, you're probably going to go to jail. Mm -hmm. Hey, Ron, man, I know you got to get going. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, being our very first guest on the show. It's been an awesome conversation with you, as I absolutely know it would be. Will you tell people how they can find you? Yeah. Um, RPCinvest.com is uh, my company's website. And of course, you can look me up on, I think, any social media site. Um, Ron does I an awesome dance. podcast as well. Tell them, tell I folks do. how they can. It's called the Get Real Podcast. Um, we do stuff a lot like this. <laughs> it's called the Get Real Show because there's a whole lot of them out there that don't. So you can go to getrealestatesuccess.com and um, subscribe. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, guys. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. You are a man amongst men, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, Ron, great to see you. I appreciate all you guys. That was an awesome discussion with Ron. Let's go ahead and tie this up with a bow and sort of, uh, we were talking uh, in the transition there. And I think one of the salient points that you made was this this notion that like who could have perceived a 500 basis point raise in interest rates and one of the things that you said was you know all all a good uh sort of sponsor can do at this point given the market given the headwinds is become the best operator they can be so yeah speak to that yeah so i think that you know we're kind of recovered regardless how we got to this point right and regardless of how the money that you are interacting with right your lps and your and the bank uh, or your, your lender, uh, there's going to be lots of different flavors of those. And at this point, not a whole lot of those factors can you really change. You know, that's the bed, and you're going to have to sleep in it. The thing that you can do right now is to operate your project, you know, as the best that it can be operated, and to be transparent and honest with your communication with both your your LPs and uh, and your lender. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, 
the LPs don't want to take you to court, right? No one wants to get into a protracted legal battle. The bank doesn't want to foreclose on you, right? If you if you don't pick up the phone and you stop paying them, well, they you were forcing them to drop the hammer on you. But if you are getting up in the morning and working that building to the best of your, you know, to the best that it can be done and sending the money that comes there to the bank and saying, "Hey, I'm doing the best I can here." To Fred's point, you know, the this the uh, special assets committee chooses who they drop the hammer on, right? And they don't want to work, you know, they don't want to just bust, you know, uh, declare a technical default on somebody over covenants. Sure. Um, so if you're if you're transparent about what's going on and and uh, you know and acting with integrity to to try to make it the best that it can be, I think you're giving yourself. Frankly, that's the only thing you can control, and it puts you in the best position to to make it through this, whatever the landscape that you're looking at, you know, is. You know, one of the things we talk about at Real Investor Roundtable has been this topic of learning how to speak bank. It's just the topic, and you know, people laugh. They're like, "Why do I need to learn how to speak bank?" Well, it's because you need, you need to learn how to communicate. Mm-hmm. And now's more than ever, you have to be able to provide as an operator good quality information where your where your business is. They a banker wants to know whether you know what you're doing. So, Fred, quickly take us back to um, that 2007 eight time period where Dominion owned any number of houses back then that were probably underwater. I would think, and you know, I mean, the the market declined. Uh, I was sitting on two million dollars of paper on assets valued at four hundred thousand by the bank here in Baltimore, and so that was a very uncommon and uncomfortable time. And I remember hearing you and Jack speak one day, sort of about that time and 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 what it took to work through that period. What did you learn then? Are these the lessons that you're that you're talking about today? Is that what you learned back then? You know that communication that like let's let's really buckle down on operations i mean i think there's a you know there's probably a long answer there but i think the the quick is that we learned to not live off of our rental real estate mm. we never really did we we treated our, our our rental properties like small like our kids mm-hmm. and they needed to breathe they needed to grow they needed to they needed to actually cash flow and so when the market went where it did in 2008 9 we just were not highly over leveraged. We weren't one of those guys who just just were, were just taking a bunch of money out and buying fancy cars. Like we're seeing today. So, you know, we just discipline, whether it's whether it's back then or whether it's now or whether it's in the future, discipline in what you're doing on, on your real estate ventures is a guiding principle. Mm. And so you you have to do that. And I think that if you have a good foundation of you you tell the truth you have integrity, you have discipline, then when you talk to your bankers, it's an easier conversation to have because you're having one conversation the same way every time. Sure. And they and they see through it. I mean, smart people in distress, it's easier for them to pick off as Jack alludes, the guy who doesn't communicate or or just tells them they know, you know bullshit. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a moment where you just have to really just be honest about where you are and communicate it correctly. All right. Anything to add there? No, sir. That's great. I'll I'll just end my thought uh, here with where we've seen this distortion to such an incredible degree that that I'm not sure I've ever seen a distortion like this in my business mm. career. And the Fed, as a result, we saw tremendous inflation. And the Fed's trying to unravel this distortion right now. And so the ride's going to be bumpy. And I think everyone just needs to understand that 
Where we end up in five years, who, who the hell knows? But we're in, a, we're in a period of unraveling what was a tremendous, incredible distortion. Well, one of the, uh, we've got a few minutes left here, about 11 minutes, and um, maybe tie into uh, these last uh, hour or so of conversation here. And this, um, I was reading uh, one of the articles that you sent over to me, it was in Bloomberg, and it was talking about how basically Wall Street loves rentals. You know, they, they love the rental business and JP Morgan asset management just struck a new rental house deal, uh, partnership. And, uh, it was $650 million, $625 million with AMH, you know, so no reluctance there, uh, in terms of, uh, JP Morgan to jump in the business. And one of the things that I, I always, that I read this a while ago. And, um, but I read it again today. So when I, when I do the research for the shows, I'll try to go back a year or two years. I try to get what, you know, what, what's in the news in the last month or so. And so one of the things that, uh, that Met, MetLife just did a, a, a big study where they feel that all new homes, this, this, uh, build to rent wall street backed investment firms control currently I'm sorry, by 2030, they're going to control about 7.6 million single family homes or about 40% of the market. That would be a humongous change. I've from read where that we are right now. Many. That is like many times. That's not increase. You, you disagree with that? No, I agree. That would be a tremendous change in the market dynamics. Oh, it certainly. Uh, I mean, there'd be a lot of opportunity if they're going to come in with, I mean, that, that, that idea has to be based off of like this, this, like fun, the fundamental idea being that they've got an advantage from a cost of capital point of view versus main street investors. Sure. Cause I do not believe that, that they're like, I, I'm not this guy who's like, Hey, you know, if we get to enough scale, then there's, then there's efficiencies we'll make and up, that'll be our competitive advantage. We'll make advantage. up crap in volume. Yes. Yeah. Like it's like in managing single family homes is hard. If you have two, it's hard. If you have, you know, 200, it's, it's even harder, but maybe you can afford some people. But, uh, I, you know, the further away the, you know, the further away the money is from the asset, I, I think that there are not necessarily efficiencies there. And so the idea that they are going, that, that institutional capital is going to take 40% of the market where, what do they have right now? Like two or something like that? I think it's about four. Oh, four. Okay, fine. The, uh, that's gotta be predicated on that. They've got a cost of capital advantage, which would come through the securitization market. Now we did see, we have seen that, uh, pre COVID we saw that currently that's not really the case. And so that would be a, you know, that, that would infer a real stabilization of the capital markets so that institutional investors can raise money very cheaply and that institutional investors are then going to at that point at, at 40 percent you know they're, they're going to be taking a chunk of inventory either away from the mom and pop investors but they'll also you know just by definition be competing with first-time home buyers uh, there's already been some blowback on that side um, i don't know that I, I i think that the single i think that single family homes are more emotional than multifamily. And I know that there was, you know, the, in the history of the multifamily asset class, there was a lot of aggregation that happened, you know, it's you know, 25, it's really 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that the, frankly, just the politics of multifamily are, I think, are very different than the politics uh, of single family. And so I'm a little skeptical about 40, I guess, is my, is my, is my point. Okay. But, uh, but certainly, I think that, you know, to your point, 
about the JP Morgan transaction, that is certainly an example that Wall Street is not going away. They, they are not viewing, right. this has not been a trade for them. Yeah, they, I mean, are they, they just business. made a $625 million uh, investment in, in DR, this operator. Yeah, right? and this is a month after that DR Horton deal um, for you know, whatever, how many thousands, 4,000 houses. And so I, and I, I, I do agree that institutional capital is, is staying, is going to continue to be in the space. I think build to rent's a great way, great place for them to deploy a lot of capital. And Hey, if, if it aggregates to the point where they're going to own 40% of the rental inventory, that means there's going to be a lot of, you know, um, very motivated buyers in the market for us to sell to, right. To, to find one at a time houses, fix them up and then put them in that pretty state to, 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 to sell it to these guys who are aggregating with this sure. cheaper cost of capital. So it was Predium that got into the deal with uh, 4,000 houses with DR yeah, Horton, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's a build a rent conversation. I think that's where it's all coming from. And I think it makes sense why it's coming from there because small investors really can't, uh, they can't get through that whole you know, process of what's involved with build a rent right now, cost of funds. And you have to go deep into the development process to really produce enough. Uh, now, do those economics work? Build a rent right now? Not really. Mm-hmm. You you have to assume replacement a replacement cost argument and 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 continue growth of cost of build as well as as well as inflation. They may be correct in the long term. Again, institutional funds it's not really always their money either. So they want to deploy. This is a great place to de- to deploy capital. That narrative also, other than the build a rent, and that doesn't make sense. There's always this edge that institutional guys who write these these offerings think that small investors are stupid. There's always that in there. Whereas I'm gonna I'm gonna roll up the single family business because the small guys really aren't that. Sophisticated. They're like, not. They're not ma- that. Smart. Mom and pop is like there's a derogatory yeah. internet. You know. I, I mean, I think we like, could look at sort of industry in general over the years and say, okay, they uh, Wall Street was never in the hardware store business and then you know home depot comes along the mollification of america the let's get rid of the mom and pop on main street we can do it better but there's there's always going to be bad operators and good operators even on the mom and pop side but the small investor who owns a few houses that is their retirement that is their net worth a lot of them don't even have debt on them they've owned you know quite quite a long time so they're not necessarily going to take away that asset that they're going to they're going to operate those two, three, four houses, they're sure. going to pass them to their kids. I don't ever think we're going to get to 40% because of that factor, mm. because of the stickiness of the small investor who covets their two, three, four properties. I think, I believe that there's a, you also read about sort of the changing sentiment. It's, it, you know, sort of st- stepping away from the financial aspect of everything, right? Like, let's look at through that, that prism. There's a changing sentiment amongst uh, sort of the 20s and 30s said, we could probably ask a couple people in this room, would you rather own or would you rather rent? And all of those people, but there, 40% of them have said we'd rather rent. Mm-hmm. If you couple that with the fact that we've got 60 million of the world's poorest and least educated people crossing our border right now mm-hmm. who desperately need a place to live but don't have a job, Good point. you could almost see a time where, holy cow, who's going to own all of these houses that we need quickly? And so that's my, that's the point I was trying to make here less from that financial prism that's supply demand. It's no, we've got some changing, really structural changing demographics in this country, right? Those are great points. I think, uh, there's an argument that we don't have enough houses 
there, it's clear we don't have enough supply. And so who's going to own that supply? Who's going to, who's going to have the advantages to get that supply? I think that small investors, moderate sized investors are not dumb. And I think we should not undervalue what they're capable of. I think there'll be a distribution amongst all those classes of, of, of owners and buyers. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I want to believe Fred that we can compete not not necessarily you because i think you and jack are really at a, a much different level than the average investor and i know you would agree with that but it's the how does um how does the small self storage at the corner of Caton avenue and wilkins compete with the extra space storage that they threw up right next door to him right now i'm sure he does compete well he's fine but for sure. those of you, i got well, a little local let, there but uh, well let's let's just mention that Five years ago, the small investor who wanted to hold a rental property yeah. had to go to their local bank and, and plead to get them to finance their one rental property or five. Now there's a national market. I mean, Dominion has a product. It's a fantastic product, as we all know. Uh, to, shameless. To do, to do that. shameless. So it's easy. It's, it, it is incredibly different and easier for an investor today. Yeah, I, I there's think a national market. It's a wonderful. Uh, Jack and I have spoken at length on on the on the podcast about sort of how the market in, um, in terms of debt and equity has opened up for the mom and pop investor, right. which is fantastic. It's layer. It's it's leveled the playing field. Whereas mm -hmm. I don't have to go to the hyper local guy who's going to be lending at sixteen and eight. You know, I can go to the national lender like Dominion, yeah, plug number exactly. two. At a much better rate. At a much better rate and probably get and better far service. better service. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, man, I, I, you know, we can wrap up this topic with uh, sort of the, you know, where we are in the pantheon of Wall Street getting into the, the rental market. I mean, go ahead if you want to speak to anything further on that. No, no, I think, I think these are great points. It's still clearly early innings for the consolidation. There's still a trend towards consolidation. Your point about, hey, this is, you know, we're not going to fix this undersupply issue without scale. And, mm -hmm. and as a result, you know, it lends itself to greater institutional involvement in the asset class. And I, I think those are excellent points. So uh, I think we can wrap there. We got about 20 seconds left in this episode. I think it's been, uh, high. thank you so much for taking the yeah, time. It's fun. I know you're a very busy man. So uh, we, did we bring you up from Florida? Jack, or no, was Jack it? told me to show up. So I, I canceled my coffee this morning. I just came right here. Awesome. Well, it's been awesome having yeah, you. That's great. Hope you come back again soon, Jack. No, we're good. Sounds good. Fun episode. Hey, guys. Thanks for checking us out once again on Real Investor Radio. We've got uh, more episodes coming every, every week. So be uh, tuning in. Give us any comments that you like, uh, questions that we didn't cover. Love to hear from you. Uh, this is Craig Fuhr, co-host Jack Bevere. Great to see you guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks.